Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you all for being here tonight. Looking forward to studying with you. We'll go ahead and start with a prayer, and then we will jump into our lesson. So let's pray. Father God, we, we are incredibly thankful to have an audience with you, to be able to bow before your throne of grace and to ask for your help, your help in all of the things with which we are struggling this week. Father, I know that everyone here has something on their mind, something on their heart, something that they are struggling with. Father, we pray that you bless us with strength, bless us with clarity and perception and wisdom. Help us, Father, to have the faith and the courage to do the things that are pleasing to you. Father, we also ask, we also ask Father, that you help us tonight as we open up the scriptures to study and to meditate upon who you are. Father, as we've gone throughout this series of lessons and spent time thinking about your characteristics and your qualities, Father, we have become even more enamored with you, even more in love with you. And Father, we pray that you will help to continue opening our eyes, that we may see you for who you are. And Father, we ask that you will help us to be trusting, help us to be faithful, help us to be obedient, help us, Father, to love you more deeply uh, and to walk in that love and obedience and faith. Father, thank you for the time we have together tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, as I said last week, I want to thank you for being here because I know that Wednesday nights are incredibly difficult uh, to, to get done with work and everything else you got going on, especially if you got kiddos and young people to, to shuttle here and there and to bring to class and everything you have going on in your week. So thank you for taking the time to be here tonight to study together. And if you're watching online, thank you for taking the time out of your week to, to study and to think about these things. I have been incredibly encouraged this, this quarter, thinking about the qualities of God, the attributes of God, reflecting on who God is, and then our response to his character, and, and living in obedience to his character, living as a reflection of his character, as his image bearers in the world. I was telling Noah tonight, my youngest, at dinner, he asked what my Bible class tonight was about, and I said, um, it's about God, that God is perfect. And he said, well, duh, <laughs> well, duh. Okay, so that's the lesson right there. God is perfect, duh. Everybody knows that. Let's go on. No, but there, there's a lot to that, isn't there? And so we're going to not only unpack what does that mean, that God is perfect. What do we mean by perfect? What do we mean when we say God is perfect? But then also reflect on what does it mean when Jesus says, be perfect, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In fact, I had a conversation with uh, a sister in Christ just about a week ago or so, and she was asking me, what does that mean? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, so can we do that? What, what does it mean to be in obedience to Jesus saying that? What does it mean for God to be perfect, for our heavenly Father to be perfect? And then what does it mean for us to live that way and to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect? So let's, let's think about that. And in order to do that, here's one of our questions. If I said to you, if I held up a pair of scissors and I said, these scissors are perfect, how would you evaluate that, that statement? If I said these scissors are perfect, what are some of the ways that you would say, yes, Wes, you're right, those scissors are perfect, or you say, no, Wes, you're wrong, those scissors are not perfect. So how would you determine whether or not that statement, these scissors are perfect, is true or false? Quality, okay? So what, what things would you, that's a, great, that's a great thing. So let's think about quality. So in what ways would we, would we examine the quality? Okay, is it sharp? Are they sharp, right? Are they sharp? Are the scissors sharp? If they're, if they're not sharp, if we say these are dull scissors, 
then you might say, those are not perfect scissors, right? If they are sharp scissors, you might say, oh, well, maybe that lends some credibility to Wes's crazy statement that these are perfect scissors. What else? So sharpness, what else? What's it? Tension, tension, yeah. George? Do they cut well? Absolutely, yeah. So are they sharp? And then do they actually cut something? And is there tension on the scissors? Is it too much or is it too little? And they're just kind of all over the place. Is there the right amount of tension? And do, do they do their job in actually cutting something? What's the purpose? Great question. Yeah, what is, what is, what's the purpose of scissors, right? To George's point, to cut something, right? And so... Yes, absolutely. So what kind of scissors are they? Are they scissors that are intended to cut paper or intended to cut cloth? Holly has some scissors that have like a weird shape on them that she cuts paper and it makes a little wiggly line design on it. I always have to be careful not to grab those scissors because they are not what I'm looking for ever. I never need those scissors. Uh, yeah, but yeah, what's the purpose of the scissors? But if you're looking for a wavy line to be cut in a piece of paper, those are the scissors for you. But if they're the wrong kind of scissors for the wrong job, then maybe they're not perfect scissors. What else? What else would you use to evaluate the statement, these are perfect scissors? I like it. I'm glad somebody said that, right? Yeah, yeah. Do they feel good in your hand? Are they ergonomically correct, right? Do they, do they feel good in your hand? I, you cut a long time. I've had like numb spots on my fingers because I've cut for a long time, cut out a lot of people. VBS will do that to you every time. And so you, if, they're, if they're good scissors or if they're perfect scissors, then they won't hurt you. But if they're imperfect scissors, they might hurt you when you cut. Think of anything else? Okay, now kind of think about that for just a second. And then let's transition and ask ourselves, if I said this thingamajig is perfect. This thingamajig, I, I just put a picture of some gears. And just any machine, a machine that you've never seen before, you really don't know the name of it, you don't know what its purpose is, you don't know anything about it, and I say, this thingamajig is perfect. Could you evaluate that statement? Be really hard, right? Be really hard. One reason is because if you, if you see something and somebody, you say, oh, that, there's an imperfection right there. There's an imperfection. And then somebody else might say, no, it's supposed to be like that, right? It's supposed to be like that. And if you don't know what it is or you've never seen one before and you have nothing to which you can compare it, then you don't know. You don't know whether it's perfect or not. You only know if it's perfect by, by saying, okay, well, what's the ideal? What is it supposed to be like? In fact, we could say it that way. Something can only be perfect in relation to what it is supposed to be, right? And I think that's helpful. I, I hope that's helpful for you, that something can only be said to be perfect in relation to what it is supposed to be. So you can say these scissors are perfect if you have a good idea of what scissors are supposed to be. But if you've never seen scissors before and you don't know what scissors are supposed to be like, you don't have any idea. I don't know what the tension is supposed to be like. I don't know what it's going to be cutting. I don't know if it's for paper or cloth or to make a wiggly line. Or I don't know if, if they're, they're supposed to be sharp or they're supposed to be dull. I don't know how they're supposed to feel in your hand. If you don't know the way they're supposed to be, then you can't really evaluate whether or not it's perfect. But if you know this is the way it's supposed to be, then you can say whether or not something is perfect, ideal, whether or not it measures up to what it's supposed to be versus having defects because you can't really tell if something has a defect 
or if that's, that's just a trait or a quality that it's supposed to have unless you know what it's supposed to be. So I could put it this way too. I, I, I was going to put a picture of an abstract painting. We all know what an abstract painting looks like, right? Uh, or some abstract paintings you've seen. If I put a picture of an abstract painting and, and I said that's a perfect abstract painting, it'd be really hard to agree or disagree with that, right? Because What's an abstract painting supposed to be like? But if I said this is a self-portrait, <laughs> then you might say, well, that's a really bad self-portrait, Wes, because you don't look that good. You look worse than that. You know, you, you'd say that's not what a self-portrait is supposed to look like. You know what a self-portrait is supposed to look like. You don't know what an abstract painting is supposed to look like because it's abstract and there is no set standard. This is the way it's supposed to be. But when it comes to an, a, a self-portrait, you have the original, you know what that person looks like, and the painting is supposed to be a reflection of them, and if it's not, then you can tell that's not what it's supposed to look like. If somebody says, here's a picture of a horse, you can tell whether or not it looks like a horse is supposed to look. You can tell if that's the way a ball is supposed to look, or whatever that picture is, you can tell. And that's the only way we know whether or not something is perfect, by comparing it to what it is supposed to be. And if you know what something is supposed to be like, you can tell whether or not it's perfect. So look at Leviticus chapter 22, verses 20 through 22. Leviticus chapter 22, 20 through 22. Now here in the text, they're being given instructions about sacrifices, as is the case with a lot of the book of Leviticus. And they're told, the people of Israel are told, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. It must be perfect. There shall not be, there shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So, a blind animal or a disabled animal or a mutilated animal or a sick animal or an animal with a blemish, they're not perfect, right? So when we say perfect here, we're not saying that's a bad sheep, you know, stop doing all that bad stuff. We're not talking about moral perfection, right? We're just saying that that lamb or that goat or that, that ox is not what it is supposed to be. It's something short of what it's supposed to be. If it's missing a limb, you might say, that's not a perfect animal. And another word for perfect is complete. It's not complete. It's not full. It's missing something, something important, something valuable, maybe even something necessary is missing from that animal. So if you had a pair of scissors, again, that was missing a, a handle or it was missing part of the blade, you would say, that's not a perfect pair of scissors. Why? Because it's not complete. It's not full. It's not what it's supposed to be. And so God says, if you offer a sacrifice, it has to be perfect. And again, we, we kind of have to move in our mind out of just that, that very small realm of moral perfection, because that's what we tend to think about, right? When we say perfect, we tend to think morally good, and you, don't, you never make any mistakes. Well, a lamb, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whether or not that lamb is complete, whether or not he is what he's supposed to be, whether or not he's full. And so uh, this animal, this sacrifice needs to be complete or whole. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, 
starting in verse 30. This is Moses' song. Deuteronomy 31, verses 30 and following. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain. May my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So this, I think, is a great way, and I'm glad the book kind of ends by talking about this attribute of God, God's perfection, because it's a great way to sort of sum up everything that we've been talking about through this entire series, because it's to say that in every way that we've talked about God, God's justice, God's wrath, God's jealousy, God's all of these different attributes of God, God is perfect in every way. In everything that God is, God is perfect. In everything that God does, God is perfect. And when we say he's perfect, we're saying he is exactly who he's supposed to be. He's exactly who he's supposed to be. His works are perfect. His works are exactly what they are supposed to be. His works are perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and there is no iniquity in them. Do you see how by comparing and understanding perfection in those terms, in terms of wholeness, completeness, fullness, being exactly what you're supposed to be, then we can better sort of understand God. Because we can say, well, that that thing right there isn't perfect because it's missing this. And it doesn't do this exactly right. And it's supposed to do this thing. My car is supposed to make this noise and it makes this other noise. My car is supposed to do this. It used to do that and now it doesn't do that anymore. So it's no longer perfect. Or ever since I bought it, it always does this weird thing and it's not supposed to. You say, my car is not perfect. But then when you think about God in every attribute, in every way, God is perfect. God is complete. God is full. God is exactly who he's supposed to be, and he does exactly what he is supposed to do, which gives us an incredible amount of confidence, doesn't it? To know that our God is perfect. Our God is whole. Our God is complete. Our God is exactly who he's supposed to be. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. We can trust him because he is perfect. Now, when you compare the story of Yahweh in Scripture, our God, the true one and living God, compared to all of the myths and legends that other groups at this time in in the ancient Near East had about their gods, their gods weren't perfect. Right? Their gods weren't perfect in any sense of the word. Their, their gods were kind of sporadic and all over the place, and you didn't know exactly what they were going to do, and one day they would do this thing, and the next day they would do this other thing, and some days you could kind of predict what they might do, and other days you couldn't predict what they might do, and some days they were fair and just, and other days they seemed to be unfair and unjust. They weren't perfect. They were like humans in that they were flawed. They were just bigger and more powerful than humans. But our God is perfect. He is exactly who he's supposed to be. 
And he does exactly what he's supposed to do. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is a song of David. So we looked at a song of Moses. Let's look at a song of David. 2 Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 26. He says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Now, I think that this is important, even before we get on to the next, the next part of this passage. I think this is important because we are not the arbiters. We are not the judges of God's perfection, right? We, we don't get to decide whether or not God is perfect because we, we don't get to tell God who he's supposed to be. We don't get to tell God who he's supposed to be. So when we say God is perfect, what we're not saying is, I think you're perfect, therefore you are perfect. You're exactly who I want you to be. You're exactly who I say you're supposed to be. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that because in our minds, in the human mind, there's a lot of times where we say, why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? Why did God do this thing? And sometimes we're confused about why God does what he does or why God doesn't do what he doesn't do. And so when the Bible makes the claim that God is perfect, it's not making the claim that human beings have decided, God, you're perfect. We set the bar right here. We said, any God that I'm going to believe in is going to be here. And God, you, congratulations, God, you, you got over the bar. You did exactly what you were supposed to. That's not what we're saying. What are we saying? Look, look at the next few verses. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Not he's a shield for some of those who take refuge in him, but he is a shield for all of those who take refuge in him. Not his word sometimes proves true, but his word always proves true. So when we say God is perfect, here's what we're saying. We say God is perfect. We're saying that God is exactly who he's supposed to be. We're saying God is exactly who he has promised to be. We're saying that God is exactly who he has revealed himself to be. We're saying that God is exactly who he intends to be. See, God tells us who he's supposed to be, doesn't he? He reveals to us, this is who I am. This is who I am. That's why the description of God, when God describes who he is, he says, I am. I am who I am. And Yahweh is, I am, the I am. He tells us, who he is. He reveals to us who he is. And he is exactly who he reveals himself to be. He's exactly who he intends to be. He's exactly who he has promised to be. He's exactly who he has, is supposed to be. Now again, you can compare that to the other myths and legends and stories about these other gods, and they're not those things, right? One day they're sort of deceiving people, one day they're, they're this way, one day they're that way, but Yahweh is exactly who he says he's going to be. He is reliable and trustworthy. Now that, again, it doesn't mean God is always who you want him to be, 
But as we've said the last several weeks, if God is exactly who you want him to be, if God is exactly who you tell him to be, then chances are that's a God of your own imagination, right? We can read through the Psalms, and there are plenty of times where the psalmist, where David and other psalmists were saying, God, why don't you do this? Why don't you show up? Why don't you fix this? Why don't you do things this way? And the answer is because he is perfect, and his ways are perfect. He has a plan. And he is going to bring his plan to fruition. And he's told you that he has a plan. Now, just because he hasn't let you in on the plan, and just because you don't know all the stuff, just because you don't know what he's up to and don't, don't know what he's doing, doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan and that he isn't working his plan. And so that's what we see in the gospel, don't we? We see that after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of asking, God, are you going to keep these promises? Are you going to show up? Are you going to do what you said you were going to do? Are you going to be the God of justice and righteousness? Are you going to deliver? Are you going to save? Are you going to redeem? And then he does. And he vindicates those who trusted in him. Those who, against all appearances, said, you know what? I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know when he's going to do it. But I know he's perfect. And I know he has a plan. And I know if he said he was going to do these things for Israel, he said he was going to do these things for all nations of mankind, he's going to do it. And it may not be in my lifetime. And it may not be the way I want him to do it. And it may not be when I want him to do it. But he is perfect. And I'm not. I'm not. My idea of what it's supposed to be, what life is supposed to be, what God is supposed to be, what God is supposed to do, my idea is biased and skewed and distorted but he is exactly who he said he was going to be. He does exactly what he says he will do. He does exactly what he has promised to do. He is exactly who he has revealed himself to be, and he's exactly who he intends himself to be. Now, just think about that one for a second. Just stop and think about that. Do you? Are you? Are you exactly who you intend to be? I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Sometimes we have the audacity to tell God, God, you should do this. Wait a second, who says? You? Me? I say God should do that. Somebody says God should do things this way. Let's talk about, and this is exactly what happens with, in the story of Job, isn't it? Job is like, I don't know why God is doing these things. I wish he'd show up and we could have a conversation about all this. And God shows up and said, okay, who do you think you are, buddy? Right? Who, where were you when I made all of this? Who, who do you think you are? Because you and I are not exactly who we intend to be, are we? Paul talks about that struggle in Romans 7. He says, I, I want to do this good thing. I, I would love to do this good thing. But then there's this sin inside of me, and I don't do the good that I want to do. And then there's this bad thing over there, and I don't want to do that. I know I shouldn't do it, but I end up doing the exact thing that I, I don't want to do. We are not exactly who we intend to be. We are not exactly who we've promised to be. We're not even exactly as we present ourselves as being, are we? Anybody that has social media is not exactly who they present themselves as being, right? Maybe they're not as bad as they present themselves to be, or maybe they're not as good as they present themselves to be, but we're not, none of us. We all dress ourselves up and pretend to be better than we actually are. 
because we know that we are not exactly as we are supposed to be, but God is. God is exactly who he is supposed to be, who he has promised to be, who he intends to be, who he has revealed himself to be. And isn't that a tremendous, doesn't that give us a tremendous amount of confidence and trust to say thank you, thank you, that in in everything else, everything else, Ecclesiastes, right? The book of Ecclesiastes, nothing else is what it seems to be, nothing. Things seem to be permanent. Things seem to be trustworthy. Things seem to be eternal. Things seem to be like, well, if I put my trust in that, I know it's going to be there. I mean, the stock market, it's been around for a long time. It'll never let me down, right? It'll never fail me. That's, that's like a rock. It's not going anywhere. And then as soon as you think that, then you figure out it's just smoke. It's just an illusion. But God is not. God is exactly who he presents himself as being. And that's what we have in the gospel, That's what we have in Jesus is Jesus shows up and he shows us the perfection of God, that God is exactly who he has always promised to be. God is exactly who he has always revealed himself to be. Isn't this what John means in John 1 when he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God? This word This word that God revealed himself through this word over and over and over again to all the prophets, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see in Jesus God's perfection, that God is exactly who he intends to be, who he has revealed himself to be. So let's think about that again in terms of ourselves. And Jesus saying, be perfect. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, if that's what perfection means, that perfection means wholeness, completeness, being exactly who you're called to be, how do we do that? Let's think about it. Look at Matthew chapter 5, kind of leading up to this part in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, passage we're probably familiar with. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We could go on. You don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, right? How do you know whether or not salt is perfect? You say, that's perfect salt. Because it's what? Salty, right? It tastes good. It's salty, right? It it has the, the qualities and the characteristics that it's supposed to have. But Jesus says, if you have salt... And it's not what it's supposed to be. It's not salty anymore. It's worthless because it's not what it's supposed to be. And you have a light, a lamp that's hidden. It's under a bushel. It's it's put away somewhere. It's not set up on a lampstand for everybody to see. A city that's that's hidden and, and can't be seen. If a light doesn't light stuff up, it's worthless because it's not being what it's supposed to be. And I think that Jesus is not only calling his disciples to be this, but he's also admonishing Israel for not being this. Because Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. But he says, but you're not being that. You're you're salt that's not salty. You're light that's not lit up. You're light that's hidden. You're not being who you're supposed to be. Again, he's not just talking about moral perfection. I mean, that's, that's an important discussion about sin and doing what's right and good. But here he's talking about your good works. 
You're supposed to be living this radically good life. Your good works are supposed to be on display for the world to see this so that people see you and they glorify your Father in heaven and they see you and they say, there is something different about this group of people. There is something different about this nation of Israel. There is something different about these people that belong to Yahweh. I want to know more about them and I want to know more about their God. And Jesus says, but if you're not doing that, if you're not being that, if you're not salt and light, then you're not, you're, you're worthless. You're not being who you're supposed to be. And then he, he goes on and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you're familiar probably. He says, you've heard it said this. This is what in today's terms we might say, y'all say this, right? Y'all say this. Y'all, y'all are constantly saying this, but I say to you this. This is how you tend to read the law and you tend to think it should be this, but here's the truth. Here's reality. He's teaching them how to be what they're supposed to be, how to be salt, how to be light, how to let their good works shine so that people see their works and glorify their Father who's in heaven. Then he says in chapter 5 and verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be like your heavenly father in this way. In this way, your father blesses people that curse him. Do we think about that? And there's people in the world that just shake their fist at the sky and God, if you're there, I hate your guts. And I mean, they just say awful things and they do awful things. They hurt themselves and they hurt others. And you know what God does a lot of times? Gives them rain, gives them sunshine, gives them blessings. And Jesus says, if you're going to be salt, if you're going to be light, if you're going to be who you're supposed to be, you do that. Don't just love the people that love you. That's worthless. Everybody does that. God doesn't need to have this sanctified, holy people. You're my special people. Now go out and love your friends. Go out and love the people that love you back. Go out and act like everybody else in the whole world. That's not salt. That's not light. That's not different. That's not who you're supposed to be. That's it's worthless. Everybody does that. They do that with or without the Spirit. They do that with or without Jesus. They do that with or without God. Everybody loves the people that love them. Jesus says, you are supposed to be different. This is who you're supposed to be. You are supposed to love your enemies. You are supposed to love the people that hate you. You are supposed to love the people that curse you. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Even though we've come a long way in the text since he said salt and light and what good is it to be salt that's not salty? It's the same thing he's saying here, isn't it? What good is it? to love those who love you. What reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be, there's our word, perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have a calling. You have a calling. This is who you're supposed to be. And it's not just loving your enemies. Read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. This is who you're supposed to be. This is the kind of people you are supposed to be. And if you're not being that, then you're you're not being perfect. 
And again, it's not just about moral perfection. Jesus isn't just saying, don't make mistakes. That's not what he's saying. Don't ever make any mistake. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be who you're supposed to be. Be who you're being called to be. You're special. I've made you special. I've chosen you. I've made you holy. I'm changing you. Be who you're supposed to be. This way. When somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn. Let them slap you on the other. When somebody forces you to go a mile, go to. When someone hates you and they persecute you and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, love them and bless them. And you say, Jesus, that's really, really hard. Yes. But he shows us exactly how to do that, doesn't he? And he says, if you're going to be my disciple, this is, this is the cross you've got to pick up. We've, we've so, I'm afraid we've so watered down not only our theology, who is God and what is God and what does it mean, what, what are God's characteristics, but we've watered down our Christianity as well, haven't we? So we've watered it down where it's just Jesus wants to save you and take you to heaven. Jesus wants you to be forgiven. Yes, that's true. He wants to forgive you. He wants your sins to be washed away, but he wants to change you so that you can be who you're supposed to be. Arguably, he wants to make you what humans were supposed to be in the first place. We can even look at the world, can't we? We can look at the way people treat each other and we say that's not the way it's supposed to be. Even unbelievers can look at the way the world is and watch people blow each other up and shoot each other and stab each other and hate each other and curse each other. And everybody can say that's not the way it's supposed to be, but we keep doing it to each other. And Jesus says, you are called to be the salt and the light in the world. But if you're only going to love people that love you back, if you're only going to be kind to people that are kind to you, if you're only going to be nice to people that are nice to you, then, then you're not doing anything different than anybody else. You're not being who you're supposed to be. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Your heavenly father is exactly who he's called to be. He's exactly who he says he is. He's exactly who he's revealed himself to be. He's exactly who he's promised to be. Go do that. Do that. Be like him. Bless those who, who hate you and curse you. Our perfect God wants to make us perfect. Not just through forgiving our sins, but by making us the kind of people we are supposed to be. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's, that's at the heart of the gospel. That that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making us perfect, but sometimes we just stop right there and say, yeah, well, I'm perfect because I'm forgiven. Yes, that, that's true, Absolutely. But, but are you striving to be who you're supposed to be, to be who you're called to be, to be a reflection of Jesus in the world? It's not enough to stop and say, well, I'm perfect because I'm forgiven. Yes, you're perfect because you're forgiven, but are you fulfilling your calling? Because that's what perfection is. It's completeness. It's fullness. It's living, living out the standard to which you're called. A pair of scissors could, could be you know, fixed, but if it never actually cuts paper and it's not doing what it's supposed to do, it's hard to say that's a perfect pair of scissors unless it's actually living out its calling and cutting the things it's supposed to be cutting. We are supposed to live a certain way. We are, Jesus is making us into the people we're supposed to be. Now, that, that's not to say any of us are there yet. In fact, look at what Paul says, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, even Paul would say, I'm not, I'm not complete yet. I'm not exactly who I'm supposed to be. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Well, that's good, isn't it? That's what Jesus has done for you. He's made you his own. And because he's made you his own, he expects us. He expects us not only to be joyful that we're forgiven, we're perfect in that sense, but he also expects us to strive, to press on towards the goal, to strive towards being the people we're actually called to be. Actually do this stuff. Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, this is what you're supposed to be, and you, you weren't, you bunch of sinners, you need to be forgiven. And that's how I used to read the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the bar, here's what you should have done, but you didn't, and so I need to forgive you. Okay, yes, that's true. But to do what? To go and actually strive to live this way. Now, Paul would say, I'm not there yet, I'm, I'm still striving. We're forgiven, we're, we're, we're saved by his grace, but we're supposed to be striving to be who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to actually be imitating Jesus, even if it costs us our life. Picking up our cross and following him. That's what discipleship is. To live as perpetual students of our rabbi, our teacher. He taught us, this is the way you're supposed to live. This is what it looks like to be human, to really be human. The world doesn't know how to be human. You don't know intuitively how to be human. You say, well, that's just common sense. It's just common sense. No, it's not. Nothing is common sense, right? Tell a baby that that's common sense. Everybody knows that. It's common sense. The baby doesn't know anything. It has to be taught everything it knows, right? Who are we to say this is the way humans are supposed to act? This is the way humans are supposed to be. God's the one who created us, and he gets to tell us this is what, it, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is what it looks like when God's in charge of the world. This is what it looks like when God calls the shots. So let's strive to be that and to do that. And this is what Jesus has done. He has made us his own. He has forgiven us our sins. And he's given us a clean slate. And he's, he's promised us this, this future in him of resurrection and life forever in a, in a world, in a life that is what it's supposed to be. Everything is perfect exactly what it's supposed to be. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that in the world to come, that, that it's, it's new, it's new heavens, it's new earth, in which righteousness dwells, in which everything is as it is supposed to be. That's what we have to look forward to, is the world as it is supposed to be. But right now, in the present, we are supposed to live in the joy of Jesus, but also live in imitation of Jesus. But I think that's a perfect spot for us to wrap up this series, because that's what we've been saying from the beginning, isn't it? That Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. Who is God? Who is God? And we could read all kinds of passages about who is God, and we could talk about all of the ways that he's revealed himself through the, the prophets and through the law and through the writings of the, the Hebrew scriptures. But you don't really know God until you see Jesus. Because Jesus is the embodiment. Everything that the Father is, is embodied in Jesus. Jesus shows us who his Father is. So much so that he could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I and my Father are one. Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. So you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how humans are supposed to behave, how humans are supposed to live? Listen to Jesus. 
Stop listening to the news. Stop listening to social media. Stop maybe even listening to mama and daddy. You know, I mean, it's not us. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to say what human behavior is supposed to look like, what humanity is supposed to look like, but Jesus does. And Jesus says, this is, this is who I'm calling you to be. I'm calling you to be salt and light in the world. He gives us the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the life to come. But here and now, he calls us to live in imitation of him, in imitation of our Father. And he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be who you're supposed to be. Be who you're being called to be. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled, overwhelmed by your perfection, that you are exactly who you have revealed yourself to be. You're exactly who you've promised yourself to be. You've, you, you do everything that you are supposed to do, everything that you've said you will do. There is no iniquity in you, no shortcoming in you. You have fulfilled all of your promises. And Father, we are overwhelmed with gratitude and also with trust. But Father, we are also humbled because we know that we are not who we are supposed to be. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus, that we may stand before you made right by faith, by your grace and through faith. And Father, we pray that today and every day you'll help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we remember not only where our help comes from, but where our instruction comes from. And help us, Father, to live as we're supposed to live. Help us, Father, to live as followers, as disciples of Jesus. Father, bless us with grace and mercy, with forgiveness, but also with courage and faith to live out our calling. Father, thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.